I'm James Langton, and you're listening to Record It. Urso Chapel is a world fair, or expo as they are now called, enthusiast and historian. In 1998, he started a website dedicated to expos, dating back to the original world fair that was held in 1851 in Hyde Park, London. I spoke to Urso and asked him where his fascination began. Well, I, I grew up in Atlanta, here in the United States, and uh, when I was 15 years old, we went to the 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee, and um, I'd heard a lot of things about World's Fairs in family lore because my great-grandmother had gone to the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, uh, so I knew about them, and I, from there it sort of spurred my interest to sort of research them more, and then Two years later, there was the somewhat ill-fated uh, World's Fair in New Orleans in 1984 that I went to, and I, I loved that one. And I figure if I love the the perhaps the uh, the most disastrous of World's Fairs, then I'm I must be onto something. So um, continuing on into college, I uh, went to uh, I studied architecture and and went to uh, Expo '86 in Vancouver, and then that was I was officially hooked at that point. So I've been a um, a fan and student of World's Fairs ever since. What's the lure of, of uh, an expo of a World's Fair? What's the appeal? Um, I think a lot of it is just the sort of idealism that's baked into them. And that sort of idea of bringing the nations of the world together to say what they, what their hopes are for the future and, and hopes are for, um, for mankind. And, the expos sort of become a sort of experimental space where people gather and um, a lot of um, public diplomacy can happen in them and people can sort of experience cultures they're not, you know, necessarily as familiar with or, or even food. Is, is that a partial explanation as to why uh, governments would want to host uh, world fairs? I mean, these things are quite expensive. They don't always work, although... Um a lot of them have been hugely successful. I'm thinking of was it Expo 67 in Canada, which my wife still talks about when she was there. Let's get onto this question of why does a government decide, or uh, why, for example, does a government decide it wants to host a world fair? What's in it for them? Different countries approach it in different ways. Uh, here in the United States, it's pretty much a private enterprise, and the government is, isn't as involved. But in other, in other countries, they have different purposes and, and different goals to set. Um, you know, in China, there's clearly an infrastructure need in a country like uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, they're still trying to sort of, you know, show themselves on the world stage to be, a, a, you know, a region of import, especially Dubai is a city of import. Um, so different countries sort of approach it differently. And there are both, there's usually a lot of focus on the tangible benefits. You know, oh, we have this plot of land, we want to develop it. Um, in the case of, of Dubai, you know, there's the hope of having an educational facility there. And in some cases, like in Vancouver at Expo 86, it was sort of a blighted, uh, ignored side of downtown uh, that wasn't really being used. And it's completely revitalized that area. And it's uh, one of the more sought after neighborhoods now. So, you know, there's both those tangible ones. But there's also the intangible ones. Um, you mentioned your wife uh, went to Expo 67. Uh, whenever I go to, to Montreal, even Toronto, people always talk about Expo 67 as being an important event in their life. And, um, you know, people have, people's careers have changed. People's 
you know, outlooks on life have changed just from their visits uh, to them. And even when you go to places like Chicago, they still talk about 1893 as if it happened last year. Um, it's still very much baked into the, the concept of the city and the region and what it means to be, in that case, a Chicagoan, uh, you know, and, and in, in, in the concept of the world. So, you know, there's both the tangible and the intangible benefits. Yeah, it obviously creates an enormous sense of civic pride, as you've demonstrated. Are there, are there measurable economic benefits as well? Has, has anyone actually sort of assessed? Well, if you look at past expos, um, there are a lot of expos that have lost money. There are a lot of expos that have made money. And some of the, the ones that we hold up as great achievements um, are often the ones that don't make money at the time. Um, and, but there's a long-lasting benefit. So I think that's why it tends to go into, it's more in the purview of governments to um, start having World's Fairs because they are more longer term uh, benefits. Um, for example, going back to the example of Expo 86 in Vancouver, um, the Expo itself lost money, but um, the uh, lottery uh, purchases during that same period help make up that cost. And if you go to Vancouver now, no one in Vancouver could imagine Vancouver without Expo 86. And when they, they later hosted the 2010 Winter Olympics, and they could never imagine hosting the Winter Olympics if they hadn't hosted the Expo just 24 you know, years earlier. So there is that sort of longer-term benefit uh, to establishing your city as an, uh, a city that's important, um, that's economically vital, that has a sort of gravitas. That's a very interesting point you raise there, um, because we know, I mean, we've seen from Dubai that, it's, uh, that it sees itself and UAE as, as on a path where it can host bigger and bigger events, prove to the world that it can ho you know, it's hosted increasingly sophisticated events, ones that require good transport links, ones that require a, a good hotel structure. Um, and it feels like it's a pathway to, I don't know what the ultimate goal is, whether it's the Olympic Games or the Football World Cup or something like that. Is it very much part of that great trilogy of events, uh, if you include the Olympics and the World Cup? I, I kind of think of it as, an uh, analogy I like to use is when you hold a party at your house for a bunch of people, you probably won't make money at the party, but it gives you an excuse to clean up the house. <laughs> It gives you an excuse to buy new China. <laughs> you know, it, it gives you a uh, sort of excuse to go, okay, I can, you know, I've sort of reached a certain level. Um, so in many of the projects, Dubai included, uh, there's, a, you know, a, a lot of uh, infrastructure uh, improvements that happen along with it. And it's, you know, it's not unusual for new subway lines to get built. Um, in Shanghai at Expo 2010, they built multiple lines to feed people into the various uh, entrances to the expo. Um, and there's always sort of uh, a transportation benefit and also sort of beefing up the hospitality industry and, and uh, all the sort of infrastructure that you need to, to host a lot of people to get the world's confidence that, yes, you can host a, a large event like the Olympics or the World Cup or, or a what we would call in the U.S. a World's Fair, what most of the world calls an expo. 
Are you excited for Dubai? Yeah, I am. I'm going to have to wait another year. <laughs> With any luck, we'll, I'll be there uh, uh, next year. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm always excited about the next one. Um, I'm already excited about 2023 in Buenos Aires. I'm already excited about 2025 in Osaka. So uh, every one of them is unique. It's not like, you know, they, it's not like uh, a lot of events where it's a rehashing of the same story. It, it really is. Each expo is its own unique thing. And even the organizers don't necessarily know what that's going to be until after opening day. But Dubai is is particularly noteworthy in you know inviting a country like Israel, which they did not have diplomatic ties with, and some of the other other countries. So they they have invited everyone. And one of the things I'm really interested in seeing uh, in Dubai is is the everyday participants of the expo because this will be the first expo where less than half of the of the people who are visiting are are Emirati. Uh, you're going to have uh, mostly uh, people whose who citizenship lies elsewhere attending. So it will really truly be uh, international. Whereas typically, you, you know, anywhere from like 90 to 98 percent of the of the people visiting are usually from that home country or that home region. Uh, this will be quite different in that way. I think you said you went to your first expo in 1982. If you could go back through history, which of the expos down the years would you most like to have been able to go to if you had a time machine? I've been asked that over the years, and my answer has changed over the years. I'm fascinated by 1939, 1940 in New York uh, because it was um, very much forward-looking, very futuristic-looking, but they didn't quite know what was around the corner historically. So a lot of the things that happened in, in 1939, 1940 um, didn't really happen until after World War II. But there was that sort of excitement and I, you know, a lot of new architectural ideas, a lot of new design ideas, a lot of new inventions in technology that had all happened. But it would all have to be on the back burner for a few years. And then it would, we would see it in the world that we had after World War II. Um, I'm also fascinated by Expo 70 in Osaka because they, they had a very, uh, it was another interesting period in history where there was a lot of change happening, uh, especially in Japan, as it was trying to sort of prove itself after World War II that it was a modern contemporary nation and was developing its own uh, identity uh, after that architecturally and again, again with architecture and design. So it's, it's kind of interesting how these little Turning points in history can often be the, the times where they're the most interesting. That was Urso Chapel, World Expo historian and enthusiast. Thank you for listening to Recorded. To subscribe to Recorded, you can head to the podcast section of thenational.ae or click the subscribe button on your favourite podcasting app. This podcast was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. I've been your host, James Langton.